looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. 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 You may be seated. Well, again, welcome those of you that are new to Calvary Chapel of Santa Cruz. We are happy to have you here with us in Scotts Valley. (laughs) What a day. What a great day in the Lord. And I want to thank you that have been praying uh, for the church. We asked uh, or made the suggestion recently, just pray at your meals with your family. God bless our church. I think the Lord is answering. We sense the presence of the Lord in the direction of the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and even provision-wise, last month we had a really good month, and we were able to actually be in the black for the first time in many, many months. You know? So God was good. <laughs> uh, if you would pray this week also, uh, I'm going to be going down to Marietta. We have our annual senior pastor's conference with Calvary Chapel, and it's a big deal. We'll be together Monday through Friday uh, down there, and uh, there'll be many hundreds of pastors literally from all over the world coming to receive encouragement, strengthening, to strengthen one another, other, and uh, I just look at it as a great time to uh, be encouraged and to encourage our brothers in the ministry. You know, there's so many of uh, the Calvary Chapel pastors that labor in, in obscurity, in places that are small, small towns and unknown places. You know, these are some of the heroes of the faith to me. They, they just are going for it. A lot of them are bivocational. They're having to support themselves in the ministry. They have families. Uh, there are pressures within and conflicts without, as Paul said it. Yet they continue to be faithful year after year, and the Lord uses them to reach their communities and lives for Jesus. And it's always great to, to have a word of encouragement for uh, men like that. So be praying for the whole conference that every man would come just with a humble, teachable, and childlike attitude as we come together, you know, and uh, that uh, the Lord would have his way. Amen? Well, let's turn in our Bibles this morning to the book of Ephesians. Again, the fifth chapter as we're making our way through the book of Ephesians. We are in chapter 6, actually, but I'd like you to turn first of all this morning to Ephesians chapter 5, because we're going to reread one verse, and then we'll launch eventually into our section this morning in chapter 6. What we want to read is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, where Paul says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, or filled with with the Spirit. So here's the question, and this is a question I ask not only of you, but I ask of myself hopefully every day. Are you being filled with the Holy Spirit? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? That is, have you experienced the power of the Holy Spirit operating in your life? Are you operating by a power other than natural power, human power, Or are you operating by the power that God provides through the Holy Spirit? And so the question we have this morning is, have you made the wonderful discovery of the Spirit-filled life? And when a person's filled with the Holy Spirit, we're told what it looks like in Ephesians. 
we're told in these verses that we've studied in recent weeks that it looks like a life of worship when one is filled with the Holy Spirit. It looks like a life of thanksgiving when one is filled with the Holy Spirit. And it looks like a life of mutual submission, submission to other human beings. And this is what it looks like. And as we've seen, all of this is simply a preparation for heaven. We learn these things, we walk in these things, because Jesus, as the heavenly bridegroom, is preparing his bride, true believers in him, for heaven. And we'll be continuing those same behaviors in heaven for all eternity. We'll be worshiping, we'll be giving thanks, and there will be a natural submission to everyone at that time. I remember the tract put out years ago by Campus Crusade for Christ. They still use it today. In fact, that's the title, Have You Made the Wonderful Discovery of the Spirit-Filled Life? It's a great tract. And it begins with a discussion of the three kinds of people that there are. This identification of the three kinds of people that there are is made at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and then at the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul the Apostle identifies the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man, or the natural person, the spiritual person, and the carnal person. What's the difference between these three? Well, the natural person is the person who is living a self-directed life. This is a, an unconverted person. This person has not been born again. Self is on the throne. Decisions and actions are being directed by the self. And in this diagram, all of those decisions and actions are represented by the dots. This often results in frustration. And Jesus, represented by the cross in the diagram, is completely outside of that person's life. He's not a Christian. He's not born again. That's the natural man. That's every human being dead in trespasses and sins prior to becoming in Christ. The spiritual person is the next one that Paul identifies. And this is the person who's living the Christ-directed life. And as you can see by the diagram, you've got the chair, which represents uh, the throne. And the cross there represents Jesus, and so he is directing all of the affairs of the throne of my life. He is in my life, he's on the throne of my life. And myself is yielding to Jesus. All of these decisions represented by the the dots, all of these actions represented by the dots, are being influenced by Jesus Christ, by his direction in my life. And then, thirdly, there's the carnal person. And this is the person who has been regenerated, who is born of God's Spirit, who has come to know Christ, but somewhere along the line lived or continued to live somewhat of a self-directed life. Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, said, you are carnal and not spiritual. The signs of their carnality were everywhere. They were carnal in the sense that There were enmities and fights and factions among them. Some of them preferred this style of ministry over that style of ministry, this apostle over that apostle, and they were making a big deal out of it. 
They were going to court against one another. They were so spiritually immature that even in their public worship services, those that had the ability to speak with other tongues couldn't keep quiet. They felt like they had to blurt it out, making everyone who didn't understand these things very uncomfortable and disrupting the service. These are the kinds of things that were going on in their church, and they had less of a sensitivity to sin than they should have had. They allowed sinful practices in their church and into their lives. Jesus was not on the throne. Self was on their throne. Self was directing decisions and actions. And, of course, that with the carnal person also results in frustration. What are the characteristics of the spiritual person? Well, this is the person who's Christ-centered. This is a person who's empowered by the Holy Spirit, who introduces others to Christ when given the opportunity, who prays and has an effective prayer life, understands the the purpose and importance of prayer, understands God's word, seeks to grow in understanding in that area, trusts and obeys God as God gives him the ability, experiences the fruit of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. That's the spiritual person. People like this are a delight to be around and a delight to get to know. They're not perfect people, but they're growing people. They're being led and directed by the Holy Spirit. And they have the ability to extend grace to others. The characteristics of the carnal person is that there is a lot of unbelief. Again, the carnal person is the person who may have accepted Christ at one time and may even know Jesus as Savior, but he's not really operating as Lord at that time. There's unbelief in the person's life. There is disobedience in areas where they know better. There's a poor prayer life, no desire for Bible study. They've lost their spiritual appetite for God's word and for fellowship. There can be legalistic attitudes or critical spirits with such a person, impure thoughts, jealousy, guilt, frustration, aimlessness, worry, discouragement, loss of love for God and others. These are characteristics of the carnal person. It's a miserable life. The carnal person is the most miserable of all human beings because this is the person who knows better. This is the person who's tasted of the heavenly gift and of the powers of the age to come, but yet is living as though those things were not true. He's the most miserable because he's in between. He's a tweener. He's not fully in the, in the spirit and in the world or in the Lord to enjoy all the benefits of obedience in the spirit-filled life, but he's not in the world either. He feels comfort, comfortable in no place and thus has no sense of purpose. That's the carnal person. But the spiritual person is the person, of course, that we want to be. And if you're here this morning and you're a natural person and you're unconverted, you're going to have an opportunity later to give your life to Christ and accept Jesus as your Savior and Lord and put him on the throne of your heart. You know, Jesus wants to live inside of you. He wants to take up residence in your body. He wants to take over your life. He wants to bless your life beyond imagination, beyond even the ability to to comprehend it. But you'll have to make a choice to accept him and invite him in. You'll have to believe that Jesus died for you to pay for your sins and that he rose from the dead to give you life. That's the gospel message. Well, Jesus promised the abundant and fruitful life as a result of being filled, directed, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. 
Now, how does one become a Christian? One becomes a Christian through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 3, 1 through 8, Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born of water and of the Spirit as you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And the moment a person receives Christ, the, the Spirit of God comes to live within that individual. Now, every Christian who truly is a believer, has the Holy Spirit living within, but not all Christians are being empowered or filled with the Holy Spirit, and that's the problem. That makes that person a carnal Christian. The Holy Spirit is the source of the overflowing life. Jesus said, He who believes in me, out of his innermost being, will gush forth torrents of living water. He was speaking of the Holy Spirit who would come. The Holy Spirit came to glorify Christ. And so when one is filled with the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what happens. Jesus is on our minds. Jesus is on our lips. We think about him. We want to talk about him. We want to share him. We want to love him. We want to adore him, live in him, and allow him to live in us. And in the very last command Jesus gave to his disciples before he ascended, he promised the power of the Holy Spirit to the church to enable them to be his witnesses. You shall receive power after that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So let's get real practical here. How do we pray in faith to be filled with the Holy Spirit? I just went ahead and took the prayer that was directly in the literature that Campus Crusade has used for years. There was no reason to change it. It's perfect. Here's a great prayer. You can pray this prayer right now as I read it along. If you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, or you've never been really empowered by the Holy Spirit as a true believer, you can pray this prayer right now, and if you mean it, the Lord will hear you. Dear Father, I need you. I acknowledge that I've been directing my own life, and that as a result I've sinned against you. I thank you that you've forgiven my sins through Christ's death on the cross for me. I now invite Christ to again take his place on the throne of my life. Fill me with the Holy Spirit as you commanded me to be filled, and as you promised in your word that you would do if I asked in faith. I now thank you for directing my life and fulfilling me with the Holy Spirit. And we printed this out in full for you and kept it in your notes so that you can have this to refer to and conduct your own study on this subject whenever you want. Very important to be filled with the Holy Spirit. How then can one be filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, we're filled with the Holy Spirit by faith. The prayer that we just prayed was prayed in faith. And the idea of being filled with the Holy Spirit is a faith idea. So how does that actually work? Well, by faith, we can experience the fruitful and abundant life which Christ has promised to us. First of all, we sincerely desire to be directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Only those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. Confess your sins. By faith, thank God that he has forgiven all of your sins, past, present, and future. And if there are any known sins that have been committed since you came to Christ that have been unconfessed, then confess those to the Lord. Admit to him that you've done this or done that. Seek to put it right. 
And the Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then present every area of your life to God. Romans 12, 1 and 2. Lay your body down as a living sacrifice. Let Jesus climb up on the throne of your heart once more. And then by faith, you claim the fullness of the Holy Spirit because he commanded to be filled with the Spirit. We just read it in Ephesians 5.18. His command is his promise of fulfillment. He said, don't be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. If he commanded it, he intends to fulfill it in the lives of those that believe it. If he commanded it, he intends to fulfill it in the lives of those that believe it. If he commanded it, he intends to fulfill it in the lives of those that believe it. Right? If he commanded it, he intends to fulfill it in the lives of those that believe it. That's his promise. And he always answers when we pray according to his will, right? 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. This is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. We know that if he hears us and whatever we ask, we have the requests which we've asked of him. So how do you know whether or not you are filled directed and empowered by the Holy Spirit. How do you know? How does anyone know? Well, did you ask? If you asked, and you asked in faith, then the Holy Spirit is doing his work already. By faith, you just believe it. How do you know your sins are forgiven when you confess them? By faith. Because God's word says if we do this, then this will happen. God's word says if we pray to be filled with the Spirit, we will be filled with the Spirit. And the authority of all of this, of course, is the authority of God himself. He cannot lie. In fact, that one reference there, Luke eleven thirteen, is so clear, isn't it? If you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them who ask him? That's what he does. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask, and we believe that by faith. Now here's the catch. Don't depend upon your feelings. The promise is God's word not the way we feel about it. The authority is the scripture and God's promise, not our emotions. We live our lives by faith in the trustworthiness of God and by faith in his word. And this diagram that's on the screen is so important. The engine that is in the front of the train is fact, or truth, if you will. And we put our faith in the fact or the truth of God's word and our feelings result. Don't ever put the caboose where the engine goes. Or put the engine where the caboose goes. That's the big problem. If I put confidence in my feelings, I'm all over the map. I never know how I'm doing based upon my emotions. But if I put confidence in God's word, I am on a rock-solid foundation. God said it, I believe it, that settles it, this is the way it is. God's word is true. Can I get an amen? There we go. All right. So what does that look like? Results of walking in the Holy Spirit. Well, our lives will demonstrate more and more of the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, great passage. We're more and more conformed to the image of Christ. Romans 12, 2 Corinthians 3.18. Our prayer life grows. The study of God's word becomes more meaningful. I've heard it said so many times of those that have been 
have prayed to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, have been filled with the Spirit in a dynamic way for the first time. All of a sudden they have a voracious appetite for the Scriptures. They can't get enough of it. They've got to open the Bible. They want to know what it says. They hunger for the Word. They thirst for the Word. They love the truth. This is important. There will be more power in witnessing, more boldness to witness. Opportunities will come up and will be less reticent to shrink away and be shy about the whole thing. But we'll open our mouths in faith and tell others of the greatest news in human history, that Jesus died for them, that he might live in them. We'll give them that message. We'll be more prepared for spiritual conflict against the world, because that's our struggle. The world, the flesh, and the devil. We'll be more capable in battling against our flesh, because this flesh is with us until Jesus returns. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These two are in opposition to one another so that we cannot do what we would. If you walk in the spirit, however, Paul said, you'll not carry out the deeds of the flesh. So we become more capable at walking in the spirit and putting down the impulses of the flesh. And we're more effective against Satan who wars against us, fights against us, lies to us, and challenges us at every turn. We become increasingly more effective to understand what his lies are about, his techniques, his schemes, and we'll be able to stand, and having done all, stand. We'll also experience a growing power to resist temptation, as all of these passages that are in your notes indicate. Now here's the thing, spiritual breathing, and I love this that Dr. Bright put this in the tract when he initially wrote it. If you become aware of an area in your life, even after you've prayed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, that is displeasing to the Lord, even though you're walking with Him and really wanting to serve Him, inevitably we're going to experience some level of failure. We're human beings. We're not completely redeemed yet. So what happens when we do that? What happens when we experience failure or sin, or perhaps even intentional sin, What we do is we again thank God that he's forgiven us of our sins at the cross. And we claim his love and forgiveness by faith as we confess our sins. We allow him to come in and we do what Dr. Bright called spiritual breathing. We exhale the impure stuff that has been allowed to come into our lives. We inhale the pure, which is the truth and the work of the Spirit of God in us. We exhale, we confess our sin, we agree with God concerning our sin. We thank him for his forgiveness, and then we repent. We change our attitude, we change our actions. Some lifestyle decisions may need to be altered. A-L-T-E-R, A-L-T-A-R. They need to be altered for the Lord and brought back in submission to him. And then we inhale, we surrender the control of our life to Christ. And again, appropriate the fullness of the Holy Spirit by faith. This whole idea of spiritual breathing is so key. Exhale all of that rot and all of that junk, all of the carbon monoxide that has been allowed to come into our our lungs, spiritually speaking. And then we inhale the pure wind and breath of the Holy Spirit himself. That's where life is. Don't you want life? I want life. 
So we wanted to go over that because this whole concept of being filled with the Spirit is key to this entire passage that we've been looking at. The one who's filled with the Spirit is living a life of worship, is living a life of thanksgiving, is living a life of mutual submission. Mutual submission, the husband to the wife, the wife to the husband, the father to the child, the child to the parents. And then we get to our topic this morning in verse 5, servants. This is chapter 6, servants. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in sincerity of heart as to Christ. Not with eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is a slave or free. And you masters, do the same thing to them giving up threatening, knowing that your own master also is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. And so it's addressing servants or bond servants in verse 5. And this was addressing a class of people that were very, very numerous and prevalent in the first century. It's estimated that a great percentage of the population of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. They were literally owned by their masters. And in many cities of Asia Minor, slaves outnumbered those that were free. And this was the reality in the first century. There was no middle class as we had it, have, have had it at times in our country, slowly dissipating. Uh, but there was the haves and the have-nots. And slavery was everywhere. And in many places in the Roman Empire, it was a very bad form of slavery, the inequality of man. But it's interesting how God chose to address the issue. The Roman Empire was not a democratic arrangement. It wasn't one where the citizens had right of redress or right of expressing themselves. There was no freedom of speech. There was freedom of religion. Eventually that went away. Uh, the people just didn't have the rights that we've enjoyed in the United States of America in this free society. And so the result was they couldn't change the system through a democratic or legislative or legal process as we have an attempt to do here in the United States. So what did God do? God decided to change hearts. If he could change fundamentally the way slaves related to their masters and could change fundamentally the way masters related to their slaves, then the work would be done from the inside out. There would be liberty that would occur and people would get a taste of it. And as is true in so many former communist countries, and even today, because of the Internet, there are nations in the world that experience no freedom, but if they have access to the Internet and they can get a taste through satellite television, they can get a taste, a little bit of a taste of what freedom tastes like. They start to want it, and they start to look for it. And we're seeing some of this breaking out in formerly oppressive regimes all over the Middle East. That's in part what's going on. Of course, it's not the whole story. But God decided, I'm going to change the hearts. 
And so the attempt to change the system focused on a change of behavior by having slaves and masters live as Christians. By the way, backing up to our former passages dealing with husbands and wives and parents and children, the same thing. Family life revolutionized because of the gospel. It would have been unheard of for a Roman citizen in the first century to hear the command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives didn't have rights in the first century. Not in the Roman culture, not in the Greek culture, and not in the Jewish culture. A woman could be divorced at the whim of their husband. And the woman would be out on her ear with no personal way of surviving unless she had family that was willing to take her in and take care of her. And so this command, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Love your wives as as you love yourself. Love your wives as you love your own bodies. Revolutionary. Absolutely revolutionary. And those that would claim that the biblical view of marital relationships is chauvinistic, and is male-dominated, don't understand history, and they're not willing to look at the facts. God liberated marriages by commanding the husbands to live this way. And, of course, in directing the women to do what they need to do for their husbands, which is essentially to respect them. And so the same is true of the slave-master relationship. Now, in our cultural context and 21st, what century is it? 21st century? Yeah, 21st century America. We, uh, we don't have a system of slavery here. So let's make application to what we do have. We have a system of employment where you have bosses and you have workers. And so the title of the message is, Don't You Just Love Your Job? That's why the message title was given as it was. So servants, they're the ones addressed. What's the command? Be obedient to your own masters according to the flesh. The word obedient is the same word used in verse 1 for children obeying their parents. Just do what you're told. Now there are five responsibilities or five principles which govern our work responsibilities in this text. The first is given in verse 5. Be obedient to your masters according to the flesh and then uh, with fear and trembling. And so here's the first principle. Not with eye service as men pleasers, verse 6. In other words, obey them, as the NIV puts it, obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you. Don't serve your master just when you know your master is looking. Don't serve your employer in a good way and in a thorough way, only when you know your employer is looking. There has to be a higher motivation than that, right? And the same idea is true in obeying the the magistrates and the authorities that are above us politically and governmentally. There has to be a higher motivation than just avoiding breaking the law. So Paul gives that motivation in Romans 13. He says, do this as unto the Lord. So here's the motivation for for slaves or for employees, if you will. Do these things as unto the Lord. Serve him. Not not with eye service. Not just to win their favor uh, when their eyes are on you. 
And then secondly, as bond servants of Christ, this requires faith. First, it requires faith to know that Jesus exists. And then second, it requires faith to realize that he's watching. And then third, it requires faith to accept the relationship that exists here. We're serving him. We're serving him. And I've had some pretty low-rent jobs in my life as a Christian. But I tell you, it was very helpful when I remembered that this is service to the Lord. I'll never forget working on the new housing project at the former Ford Ord. And I was working for an electrical contractor, and I was supposed to clean out excess... Uh, you know, what's the name of that, that, what you put on the, the drywall, the, the compound, drywall compound? What's it called? Plaster. plaster. There you go, plaster. Excess plaster out of the electrical bosses. I get up in the morning, and I look forward to a great day of work. Okay, what are you going to do today? I'm going to clean plaster out of electrical boxes. How long are you going to do that? All day long. How many days are you going to do it? I don't know. I guess until it's done. House after house after house. I was the only one that was on that job for this huge electrical contractor. Going from house to house. And I realized, you know, this is boring, monotonous, tiring, horrible work. For four bucks an hour. But it was the job God gave me. And I felt like I needed to be faithful at it. But then something clicked. You know, you're in your, these houses all by yourself. The electricians haven't come in behind you to start installing the fixtures. So you can do this job however you want. So work hard, but, there, you know, no carpet on the floors, nothing on the walls. It was an echo chamber. Great place to sing. It was like singing in the shower on steroids. So I just learned what a joy it was to just worship the Lord. And it just transformed the whole job as I was doing this box unto the Lord. And this box unto the Lord. And knocking this plaster out as unto the Lord. It was great. You can do that with any job that exists. Requiring faith. Knowing that Jesus is watching. You know, just inviting him into it. Lord, you want to hang out with me while I clean plaster out of these electrical boxes? Of course he does. Loves hanging out with people and things like that. The next principle, doing the will of God from the heart. Now listen, people want to know what the will of God is for their lives. We all do. Well, here's a part of it. Get a job. And then, when you have a job, realize that by doing it for and unto the Lord, you're serving the Lord. That's his will for your life, or at least part of it. When did we get this idea of separating the secular from the sacred? Why is it less spiritual to clean plaster out of an electrical box as it is to read my Bible? If God has called me to it, and that's what I'm supposed to be doing in that moment, then that's my worship if I do it to him. And it doesn't get any more or less spiritual. It's all for him. And that's where our liberty is. That's where our liberty is. And of course, included in all of this is a full day's work for a full day's pay. Show up at 8, start working at 8. And then... Whistle blows at five if you have a whistle, and you end at five. 
this can be a challenge sometimes. I remember working for the Santa Ana Unified School District for about eight months before we moved to Monterey. And frankly, the guys that are on, on my paint crew, including the boss himself, they were lazy. So the 15-minute scheduled break that we had you know, sometime in the morning before lunch was always a half an hour. And the lunchtime, which was scheduled for a half an hour, was always an hour. And then the afternoon break, before we knocked off for the day, was always 15 minutes scheduled, but ended up being a half an hour. I, I was very uncomfortable with that. I hated the whole system. Because if I sat there, I'd be a horrible witness. Because they knew I was a Christian. So what are you doing sitting here with us as we're being lazy? And they never said it, but they could have said that. And if I went back to work and just got up at 15 minutes during break time and just started painting again, then I'm working in the same room that these guys are taking their extended breaks. So, you know, who do you think you are to get back to work? You know, there's that attitude. So what I did is I went to the foreman and I volunteered to work in different areas or different schools. And he gave me my request. So I was able to go to places where I didn't have to be subject to their system. But it was horrible. Full day's work, full day's pay. That's God's will. The next principle, with goodwill, doing service as to the Lord and not to men. The idea there is kindness, benevolence, goodwill. In other words, we check our heart and our attitude. And realize that the good job that you do, whether it's cleaning plaster out of an electrical box or being entrusted with a higher level of responsibility, the good work you do is a blessing to that boss, whether or not you think that he or she deserves it. And there are a lot of bosses that aren't, you know, really worthy of any respect because of the way they conduct themselves. But we give it to them anyway because we're serving the Lord and not man. And then the last principle, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he'll receive the same from the Lord. Now, our employers may not treat us well. They may not pay us what we think we deserve, but the Lord will definitely pay us back if we serve him and work for him. And that's a great blessing. You know, provision that he provides for us. And strength that he provides for us in this life in fact he may reward us materially or financially by raising the bar and giving us ability to work in other areas that may produce a greater income or his reward may be in heaven that's may, maybe when we get it not here in this life either way it's very clear from our text that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. The Lord will reward. Now here's the danger, and this happens to Christians. Because we tend to work hard, and Christians, of course, should be more responsible and more faithful and more trustworthy than those that are not. And where that is true, the believer is oftentimes rewarded in a greater way financially. Bosses many times want to reward that kind of faithfulness. 
And it happens. And then, of course, I'm not spending all of my money wasting it on myself. I'm not, you know, uh, spending money for habits that are ungodly or destructive. So I get to keep more of my money. And then hopefully I'm a good steward and I'm giving to the Lord his portion. Therefore, he's giving back to me. The bottom line is, is that sometimes being a faithful worker produces greater financial reward. And when that happens, we have to be careful. We have to be careful that we not allow our prosperity to turn our hearts away from the Lord. The cycle of the book of Judges sometimes happens even within Christians' lives. They become very prosperous. They forget the Lord. They start pursuing other goals and other lives and other gods, so to speak. And then the Lord raises up trouble. And the person says, okay, this is painful. I don't like to be chastened like this. And they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord raises up deliverance. And there's freedom and peace again. And then the peace continues. Prosperity grows again. And then there's that tendency to, again, look at these things and put our confidence in these things. And we can't let that cycle of the book of Judges be the cycle that we live in as believers. Because when that happens, it essentially is shelving us in terms of our fruitfulness and ability to serve the Lord. I love the prayer of Proverbs 30, where Solomon prays, removes falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God or profane the name of my God. I just love it for the Lord to decide. You decide what I'm supposed to have. And help me live faithfully with what you decide I'm supposed to have. So that's the servants. There's a lot there for us to chew on as we learn to work hard as unto the Lord, serving him directly. What about the masters? Here's the proper attitude and heart of masters. Verse 9. Do the same things to them. To whom? To your slaves. That is, don't treat them well with eye service, but do it from the heart. Be full of goodwill towards your slaves. Know that as you treat your your slaves or your employees well, you're going to receive the same from the Lord. So a master should pay his hardworking employees fairly and well, if he can. And a master should be fair in his distribution of work assignments. And a master should be considerate of his employee's family life and the other priorities that are in his life so as not to demand so much of his employee that it actually hurts his employee's overall life, hurts his marriage, hurts his family life. Master should treat his employees well. And the text in verse 9 specifically says, Do this without threatening. So don't be a yeller. Don't create an oppressive environment. Don't create an abusive work environment. None of this is pleasing to God. The employer that has to raise his voice and bark and make everybody afraid of him is an insecure man and isn't leading biblically. The Christian leader, the Christian employer, the Christian boss should be different than those that are not believers.
and the motivation behind all of it in verse 9 is knowing that your own master is also in heaven and there is no partiality with him. In other words, he is watching and one day you're going to be standing before the Lord and you'll realize in that day what he had required of you. If you think you're getting away with it now, no, you're not. You're going to have to answer according to how you've lived your life in this body as a Christian. And this whole idea that God is watching. He's watching me as a slave or as a, an employee. He's watching me as a master or as an employer. He's watching. He's got his eye on it. My recognition of the fact that he's watching me is partly what it means to fear the Lord. That's what it means to fear the Lord. There's not a nebulous understanding of the fear of the Lord. We read verses like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Well, what does that mean? Well, in part, it means recognizing that he's watching. Now, with what expression on his face is he watching me? Certainly not angry. He's loving, but he is paying attention. And somehow in his kind, benevolent look and attitude that he has toward me, there's an accountability with it too. And that's what I recognize. There's an accountability to God for how I live this life. And this is one of our greatest spiritual problems that we have is the lack of the fear of the Lord. But it's the greatest way to get back on track spiritually if we're being careless, and that is to begin to fear the Lord again. Recognize he's present. By faith, understand that he's watching, and he's superintending the affairs of your life. There's a story from the Chronicles of Narnia. I love the whole scene, this little vignette in The Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe, the first book in the series. Uh, two of the children, Susan and Lucy, are getting, to read, uh, getting ready to meet Aslan, the lion, who represents Christ for the very first time. They'd never met him before. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, they can talk in the story. Mr. and Mrs. Beaver are speaking with Susan and Lucy, trying to prepare them for this meeting of Aslan. And Susan says, oh, I, I thought he was a man. She finds out she's a, he's a lion. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mrs. Beaver says, That you will, dearie. And make no mistake, if there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. And then Lucy says, Then isn't he safe? And Mr. Beaver chimes in, he says, Safe? Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And he's the king, I tell you. I love that line. Of course he isn't safe. Is Jesus safe? If you read the description of Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, eyes as a flame of fire, out of his mouth a two-edged sword, his countenance like the burning sun, his Raymond is white and glistening, as you can imagine. His feet like burnished bronze, ready to stomp on sin. Does that sound safe? When John saw him, he fell at his feet like a dead man. But he's good. Of course he's not safe, but he's good. 
Thank God he's good. So he'll treat me kindly and fairly and as my great high priest and as my advocate and as my savior and as my Lord and if I obey him even as my friend. No, he's not safe, but he is good. And boy, do we need to learn that, don't we? We need to walk in that because that's who he is. So what have we seen? We've seen that the most important practical command for all true believers is to be filled with the Spirit. We've asked and hopefully answered the question, have you made the wonderful discovery of the Spirit-filled life? We've looked at the proper attitude and heart of the bondservant, and we've looked at the proper attitude and heart of masters. All of it the result of having been filled with the Holy Spirit. So we go back to one of our earlier questions. Do you know Jesus? Has to start with that. Are you a natural man, unconverted? You don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Are you a spiritual man who is attempting to walk in the Spirit and are experiencing some level of spiritual fruit? Or are you a carnal man or woman? living with self on the throne. If you're the natural man, the unconverted man, you've got an opportunity right now to put that right, to make it different. You can accept Jesus Christ. And here's the good news. God loves you. He really does. He loves you so much and he values you so much that he sent his son Jesus Christ to die for your sins and pay for every transgression you ever committed. And he promises that if you will accept him and this gift of salvation and yield and open your heart to him, he will give you eternal life. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And he will actually come to live inside of you. And will begin living in you a life that is beyond any life you could imagine. Far greater than the sin you've been operating in. The bondages that have been a part of you. So the question is, will you say yes to Jesus? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to have studied your word and hopefully to have heard your heart in the scriptures. And now we pray for anyone who is among us that has not yet made this commitment, and we pray that the Spirit of God would just communicate to them in a very powerful way, drawing them to the cross, drawing them to Jesus. We ask for that great work of the Spirit to take place right now as we wait on you. And as we pray, I've just got a simple question to ask as we're in this attitude of prayer. Are you willing today to make Jesus your Savior and to open your hearts to him as your Lord? to put him on the throne of your life. If you are, would you do me a favor and just raise your hand right where you're seated so I can see you. Raise it up high enough so I can see your hand. And I want to pray for you and lead you in a prayer to actually receive the Lord into your life. Anyone this morning, you're saying, yep, that's me. I want to receive the Lord. I'm a natural man. I've been doing my own thing. been living with self on the throne. It's time to change that. My life is out of control. I need Jesus. Anybody this morning? Anybody?
Then we've got the question, am I a carnal person or am I a spiritual person? Maybe there's something that you've been holding on to in your life as a Christian that has kept you back from really walking in the fullness of the Spirit of God. Unforgiveness, perhaps, towards someone that hurt you. Unbelief. Some kind of habit, like an alcohol problem or a drug problem. Maybe you've been dabbling with some sexual form of sin, pornography. Maybe you've been unfaithful to your spouse. Maybe not with your body, but in your mind. This is a time to get that right. Maybe you've just been angry, full of anger. And people around you never know when you're going to blow. It's time to put that right. Unbiblical, sinful anger is not of God. Maybe you've been gossiping or judgmental about others. And you've been avoiding people that you shouldn't be avoiding. It's time to put that right. It's time to agree with God as his Holy Spirit is saying, listen, I'm putting my finger on this. Would you just acknowledge it to me? Just tell me about it. Just tell me that this is what you're doing. And I'll forgive you and I'll cleanse you from all unrighteousness, and I'll free you from this. Make a decision to turn from and to do something about it. I'll strengthen you and give you the ability to turn from it and do something about it. But you're going to have to turn to me. Will you turn to him this morning? Will you let him be back on that throne and have his way? Exhale. All of the carnality and all the junk and inhale the forgiveness and the spirit of God Lord we need you so much and in these areas that are in our hearts and lives we so need to keep short accounts with you we so need to regularly practice this liberating practice of of, uh, confessing our sins confessing our weakness. So Lord, do a work by your Holy Spirit in this place and cause there to be freedom, restoration, strengthening, confidence and encouragement, all produced by the Holy Spirit. Thank you so much for hearing our prayer. In Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Shall we stand together? The pastors will be up in front, willing to pray. Perhaps you've really identified some areas that you really do need to deal with this morning. Well, take advantage of someone praying with you and praying for you. They'll pray with you and for you, and you'll receive the kind of strength that you need. Because when we confess our sins to one another and pray for one another, the Bible promises we will be healed. That's what happens. So don't let your pride keep you from receiving the prayer that you may need this morning. So the pastors are available for prayer uh, immediately following this last song. Let's just continue as we uh, worship, and then you'll be dismissed. May the Lord bless and strengthen and keep you, all of you in Jesus' name. And now you can give yourselves permission to be hungry for tri-tip sandwiches. (laughs) 